This episode is brought to you by AREP, American Real Estate Partners. The best investments that I made throughout my career happened in times of uncertainty. And, you know, and I have very firm views on the future of cities and the future of, of office um, that I think are contrary to a lot of what you read about, you know, these days. And, you know, I, I think one of the important fundamentals of successful real estate investing is to be able to separate temporary anomalies uh, or, or fads from trends. And I, and I think the trends are crystal clear. COVID hasn't stopped the world's population from growing or the world from urbanizing. For Rick Clark, the future of the office is secure, even in an environment of workplace flexibility, which, incidentally, he doesn't think is a bad thing. Until 2020, Rick had been at Brookfield in New York for more than 30 years, overseeing its rise to become the biggest office landlord in the city. He stepped back from the chairman's role at Brookfield Property in February 2020. And in November of that year, he announced the formation of Waterman Clark, which is a joint venture with Todd Waterman. Rick is now the company's managing partner, and Waterman Clark's first big undertaking is the revamp of Lever House, a joint project with Brookfield. The building was once the headquarters for the soap company Lever Brothers, and it was the first commercial building in New York City designed with a glass curtain wall. They credit it for bringing in the modernist architecture era in New York. Today, it has no tenants at all, and Brookfield and Waterman Clark are spending $100 million to upgrade it. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. And on today's episode, we're speaking with Rick about his transition from a massive corporate job to essentially running a startup and his views on the future of the workplace. First, though, I asked him how he envisages a property like Lever House fitting into the post-pandemic office environment in the city. Lever House was built in the early 1950s when the Lever Brothers Soap Company, uh, in response to their desire to move their U.S. headquarters from Boston to New York, um, you know, were looking for for a home for their people, and they they wanted to make a statement, um, you know, not just about their brand, but also for their people. And you know, they hired Gordon Bunchaft and Natalie DeBlas of SOM, two of the hottest architects of the time, and they designed a building that was sort of way ahead of its time. It was one of the first glass and steel buildings in New York City, if not the first. It ushered in the the modern architectural era. Um, the building has high ceilings, which is very unusual for buildings of this vintage. It had very few columns, which again is very rare for buildings of this vintage. Um, and what what the company did is they, they built out a podium to the lot line uh, on the second floor which, but, and they built a tower that, that, that sort of rose up from that on 30% of the lot. So what it, what it did is it, it did a couple of things. It created this, this great outdoor space, indoor outdoor space, 15,000 square feet of indoor space and 15,000 square feet of outdoor space on the third floor. But that it also, um, created these smaller boutique floor plates on the tower that just maximize light and air and views. So, you know, what, what we're doing is doing what Lever Brothers originally did. They turned the third floor into their hospitality floor. They put their cafeteria and gathering area there. There's photos of them, you know, having shuffleboard um, events out on this terrace. So 
you know, since they departed the building, that floor has been leased to office occupiers. We're turning it back into a hospitality center for for the benefit of those that occupy the building. So, you know, we're putting in a a tenant exclusive club um, with indoor outdoor space, um, a, a, um, a space that will be powered by um, a high end food and beverage operator. So, you know, throughout the day, employees can come down with their laptop sit down somewhere, do work, grab something to eat, a snack, a cappuccino, or have breakfast, lunch, or light bites in the evening and cocktails. And, um, you know, so it's, you know, it's basically planned to provide this flexibility so that, you know, um, this workforce can move around. And, you know, there's studies that show that, um, that, you know, during the, the, well, let me back up for a minute. So, between working in an office and home, studies show that the average person spends 85% of their time during the day indoors. And, and studies also show that if people are given just 20 minutes a day during the workday in an outside environment, even if they're not doing physical exercise, the impact on their well-being is, is substantial. So you know, we're, we're basically creating that kind of environment here at, at Lever House. I want to talk, um, step back a little and talk about some of the things that you've been doing. So you left Brookfield in February 2020, which was kind of like the last few weeks before the pandemic. Um, and then you announced the Waterman Clark Venture in November of 2020. And you were at Brookfield for so long, like three decades. What's your working relationship with them now? Like obviously, apart from something like Lever House, which is, of course, a, a joint redevelopment. I spent... Um... Geez, I'm embarrassed to say how long I spent with Brookfield and its predecessor companies, but I was there for 36 years. Um, you know, I had a very meaningful hand in building the team. I have a lot of great friends there. And um, so, you know, the relationship is great. Um, it is a great organization with a lot of great people. And um, I'm very happy to be partnered together on, on Lever House. Hopefully we'll find more things to do together. Are you still an advisor? Or do you still like talk to people every day i remember when you first left it was sort of like you would keep on with an advisory role has that evolved well i i think i was uh, i remained chairman of the real estate entity until january of 2021 i'd have to confirm that date but you know since then i have not been an advisor um again just friends and former colleagues so i am in touch with many but i'm doing my own thing now and and brookfield has been great doing their own thing as well what was that transition like going from like a very senior role at a big like global asset manager like Brookfield to setting something out of your own? Well, look, I, I you know, I think for me, um, you know, of course, a little bit of an adjustment. Um, I think when I left Brookfield, there were, you know, probably somewhere around 21,000 people involved in the real estate you know, business. So I, you know, I moved to what is in effect a startup organization with 30 some, um, but you know, I was at the point in, in my career where I really wanted to be more local and um, and get you know get back closer to the real estate. Um, so it's been you know it's been a, a fun adjustment and um, exactly what I expected to be honest. What's been the best thing about it? Do you think? Well, um, probably not sleeping on an airplane a couple of nights a week. 
It's not just the Waterman Clark venture that you've been doing lately. I saw, you know, you invested in Lex and you sit on its board. So just for context, Lex is a company that basically allows people to buy and sell shares in individual commercial properties for very small amounts of money, like $250, which in a way is part of the democratization of real estate because it opens up the asset class to a whole new cohort of people that have never really been able to invest in real estate at a, at a grand scale. So your background was largely kind of traditional real estate, what does your presence and your voice do for a company like that? Lex is um, a really interesting interesting platform. And as you said, um, a lot of wealth has been created um, through the real estate business, but it's been sort of hands off to the small, um, you know, average, in, yeah, yeah. average investor for, you know, for lots of reasons. Um, because, you know, they're high investment minimums, there's sort of long-term hold periods. A lot of small investors can't afford to tie up their money for long periods of time, lack of liquidity. There's accreditation standards. You have to have a minimum net worth of, you know, I don't know, a million dollars or whatever it is. And so, you know, they've, they've been shut out. And so, you know, Lex does a couple of things. One is it introduces real estate to, to these investors. It gives them daily liquidity. There's, you know, there's an exchange you can sell your shares on every day. But, you know, from an owner's perspective, what really pulled me into Lex and intrigued me about it is it addressed some of the pain points of, um, of actually owning real estate. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times in my career where um, we had a, you know, a sponsor ownership interest in a building and uh, a partner uh, for reasons that were sort of personal to them wanted to exit, um, but it wasn't consistent with our um, sort of wants and desires for the property. And, you know, we might not have thought it was the right time to sell. So, you know, recapitalizing an asset um, on an exchange like Lux gives those that want out the ability to get out whenever they want. And those that want to stay in the ability to stay in whenever they want. So um, it's, you know, it's a really interesting, it's a, it's a, you know, young business, um, but doing really well. They've, they've listed a couple of assets so far and um, I'm excited to be, you know, part of it. I think, you know, my, my role with the company is more to make introductions um, to, you know, industry owners. Um, I'm not a technology person, um, you know, although I'm interested in technology, um, um, you know, it's not, not my end of the business. So that's something that you bring where you say, okay, well, I know, like I could introduce you to this particular owner, like I could help you out with this kind of, um, this avenue of meeting new people. Is that what the sorts of things yeah. you're doing? Because it is, what you say is a very young company. I don't know how old the co the founder is. I've interviewed him and he's not, he's not been around for a long time as, as far as I can deduce. <laughs> yeah, there, there are three co-founders um, and I'd say they're all in their 20s and they're, you know, really smart. Um, ambitious, um, you know, astute founders, and um, you know, look, I I have real estate experience, and I think that's that's what I bring to the table. Are you looking more to invest in companies like that? Well, I, I've always been um, personally interested in um, you know innovation and technology that enhances the real estate business. Um, real estate, I think, gets gets sort of a bum rap of being um, you know, technologically backwards or, you know, not advanced. And, it, and it's not really true. I think sort of when it comes to back of the house, um, you know, the operations of, 
of buildings, technology and innovation has been an important part for a very long period of time. But a lot of these innovations and technologies are sort of helping to deal more with the front of the house, the hospitality end of of real estate, but also the capitalization of it, um, which is where Lex comes in. So, you know, personally, you know, outside of my involvement and participation in Waterman Clark, I've, I've been investing in, um, you know, a number of, of these businesses. It's just, you know, personally, personally interesting to me. Wellness is in our DNA. At American Real Estate Partners, we believe better spaces lead to better days. That's why we dedicate ourselves to providing the best in health, safety, and connectivity portfolio-wide. With our entire portfolio UL Healthy Buildings verified and well health safety rated, our customers can increase their physical and mental well-being while encouraging and enhancing productivity. We assure the safety and comfort for our customers as they return to the workplace with confidence and clarity. That is the AREP difference. Visit AREP at AmericanRAPartners.com for availabilities. So you're a great believer in office and you're a great believer in the city. Let's just establish that first and foremost. But it really is, it, it is impossible to ignore that people are working differently now. As you said, people don't want to be chained to their desk. And the office population is not back in the city. The numbers show that. They show that the buildings are less than 40% occupancy still, um, even now. And last year, the you know, market value of office buildings um, in the city went down like 16%, according to the comptroller. So as someone who is investing in office and, and, and building office and redeveloping office, can you honestly say that those kinds of facts and figures don't make you nervous? Yeah, they don't. In a perverse way, they excite me because, you know, I think that um, the best investments that I made throughout my career happened in times of uncertainty. And, you know, and I have very firm views on the future of cities and the future of, of office um, that I think are contrary to to a lot of what you read about, you know, these days. And, and, I, and I think they both go together. And if... Um, you indulge me, maybe I can talk a minute about future cities and future my views on future of office. So, you know, what, what, um, you know, for sure in the early days of COVID, many sort of decamped big cities for their weekend homes or their parents' home, or, you know, some even moved to Florida or, you know, Texas or whatever. And, um, and at the time, both apartment vacancies and office vacancies sort of skyrocketed in major cities. And, you know, since I'm based in New York, maybe I'll talk about that. New York's apartment vacancy, which is typically 2 to 3%, went up to 10%, which is kind of an unheard of level. And the office vacancy went up even more dramatically to, to 20%. And, you know, I, I think one of the important fundamentals of successful real estate investing is to be able to separate temporary anomalies uh, or, or fads from trends. And I, and I think the trends are crystal clear. COVID hasn't stopped the world's population from growing or the world from urbanizing. And just to give you a couple of facts, you know, today, um, about 55% of the world's population or 4.2 billion people live in cities. The World Bank is predicting that by 2045, so you know, not, not that long from now, 70% of the world's population or 6 billion people 
will live in cities. And, and you know, at the same time, about 80% of the global GDP is generated in cities. And that, you know, that can't change easily. Um, I mentioned before on, on our talk that um, millennials and Gen Z age cohort are making up, you know, about 55% of the workforce. And this group, including recent college grads, still want to live in dynamic urban centers and New York City is at the top of the list. So, you know, so what's happened? Fast forward to, you know, where we are now. I think, you know, one stat that sort of proves the point that, that they want to be here is that apartment vacancy has gone from 10% to 1.7%. So it's actually at a historic low and, and, and rent levels that are at historic highs. And, um, you know, in, employers follow talent. Um, you know, companies chase talents and, you know, the young people want to be in, in cities. And, um, and, and as I mentioned, New York City is the top of the list. The, the other thing that I'd say is that, you know, when cities are built, its physical plan is sort of locked in for generations. And, um, and many of the cities that are, have been sort of mentioned in media now is, you know, people, it's people moving to such as Austin and Nashville and, and even Miami they weren't built like New York City with its its great transit system, say what you want about it, and its grid pattern. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how many friends that I have that are down in Austin now that have said to me in the course of the last year, you know, they find themselves every day in gridlock trying to get to work. You know, they, you know, tr trying to go across town, something that took 20 minutes a few years ago takes an hour and a half. And so... You know, New York City and, and, and several of the big cities are built for growth. The young people want to be here. If you, you know, look at the, the growth industries like tech and innovation, you know, they've been responsible for about 33% of the leases since 2019. And, you know, they've been, been the ones making commitments throughout, you know, throughout this pandemic. The exact impact of COVID and the, you know, adjustments that will be made to office will sort of will take a little while to sort out, but, you know, th throughout my career, you know, be it, you know, 9-11 or, or Brexit or the global financial crisis, each time one of these periods of uncertainty come about, come about, everybody predicts the end of office. And um, the truth is tweaks are made, um, adjustments are made, but office rebounds. And so, um, I'm a big believer, but, you know, as I said before, I think there are a number of things ha that were happening to address the, the needs of the, you know, the rising workforce and, um, and those were accelerated. And, um, you know, if you look at the leasing done, I, I'm sorry to keep using New York City, but it's where I'm based. You look at the leasing that's been done um, over the last couple of years, I think 70% of the leases signed were done in so-called better buildings buildings that sort of addressed, you know, this wellness and health and flexibility desires of, of, of today's workforce. What if everyone goes hybrid, which is what they seem to be doing? Well, look, that's not an unhealthy thing, to be honest. Um, I, and I, you know, I would predict that, um, when things settle down, that, that that there will be an element of flexibility to the modern workforce, and, and it's not a bad thing. I mean, I I think about when I was sort of a, a young CEO of a major real estate business. You know, one one of my struggles was trying to manage diversity in the workforce, and 
you know, the, the number, the, just to pick one example, the male female ratio was, was pretty good within our business until you got to a senior level. And then it kind of fell off the charts. And why did it fall off the charts? Because, um, and I take personal responsibility for this, our work rules were rigid. And, um, you know, and, and I think what people have learned is that because of the evolution of technology and other things, people can be productive working from home, um, you know, part of the time. And so, you know, I think a number of businesses are going to provide the flexibility to, you know, working mothers and just other employees um, to work out of the office some, some time. But I don't, you know, I, 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 I would not at all bet against um, it materially impacting office going forward. And, and I can, you know, maybe give one sort of anecdote here and I, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. So I'm not going to name names, but I'm going to tell you there's one major financial services firm that in response to the events of 9-11, they, they had a major concentration of people in a couple of block radius in part of the city. And they decided that, you know, because of the events of 9-11, um, they could no longer, uh, it, it, campusing was no longer an acceptable risk for them. So they moved jobs out of New York City. Um, and, and basically decampused. Well, guess what? Seven years later, they bought the building across the street, redeveloped their own building and moved 25,000 jobs across the street from each other. And, you know, what happened? Well, upon study and reflection, the, you know, they, they studied new security systems, turnstiles, security check-ins, set-off distances, ways to harden the cores of the buildings, um, bringing in cameras, tying them into the police station, you know, on and on and on. Um, so, you know, that, that same business has sort of said that, um, you know, in response to COVID, they're going to reconfigure their office so that, you know, 50% of their employees will be in the office full time, 40% will be hybrid and 10% will be permanent work from home. And, and they went so far as saying that we're, you know, we're also going to hot desk and we need two desks for every three people. Well, you know, a number of people have tried that over the years. Surveys show that people want their own space. You know, we'll, we'll see how that works. But, you know, my, my guess is, you know, the, the predictions that people have made early during COVID, you know, won't pan out exactly the way that, that they think and adjustments will have to be made. I mean, if you remember one major financial services CEO said at the beginning of COVID that we may never come back to the office. And then he said, everybody needs to get back to the office. Um, so, you know, there's so Jamie Dimon. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not going to name, I'm not, okay. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. And, um, you know, these are all amazing people, but I, look, I, the, the best, most forward thinking, most successful companies value the, the, um, the power of in-person collaboration, you know, spontaneous interactions lead to creativity and problem solving and productivity. And that's just hard to do in a zoom call. Um, and I, I don't know how you build a culture remotely. Like I, I honestly think it's impossible. And can you imagine being a bank trying to manage risk remotely? I mean, I think it's a disaster. So, you know, I, I think, um, 
you know, new hires or, you know, the next generation of leaders, you know, for those that are ambitious and want to climb the corporate ladder, they really need to be in the office. Um, Ken, Ken Griffin, the, you know, founder, principal owner of Citadel said in a recent interview, I'll get the words a little bit wrong, but he said something like young professionals not in the office are committing career suicide. And look, the corporate ladder is not virtual. It's in the office. And so you, you really need to be there. And, um, but, you know, a balance between some flexibility, I think, is, is not necessarily a bad thing for our industry or for companies. Do you think that there are office assets in the, in the city that are going to have to evolve and change, though? Yes, um, I do. I, th- I think some are going to be really difficult to evolve, though. Um, which is kind what's of what's going to happen to them? Well, it's you know natural <laughs> evolution of any city. You just look at what's going on on Park Avenue as an example. Um, I think you know there, there comes a period of time where where buildings are obsolete. There's new technologies and innovations, and um, you know I think it's the the public sector's responsibility to to recognize this and to help facilitate the growth of the city. So they do things like rezoning. So the east side rezoning, um, which impacts Park Avenue directly um, addresses this. So, you know, if you look at um, J.P. Morgan Chase's building, they're building a brand new building, you know, as a result of this rezoning on Park Avenue. We're spending $100 million on the redevelopment of Lever House across the street from where I'm sitting on Park Avenue, uh, GD, um, SNY and, um, and their partner are, are building a brand new building, which is right next to a brand new building, which is 425 Park Avenue. So, you know, I, I think some buildings will come down. Um, some buildings will be, you know, redeveloped. Lever has great bones. It's, it has a lots, lots of reasons why, um, it should be redeveloped versus, you know, torn down. And um, so I think I think you'll see these two things. But, you know, I, I wouldn't go out and buy any building. You know, some buildings will only be worth land value. Um, so, but uh, that, yeah. Is that a horrible thought that they'll only be worth the land that they're on? I mean, some, some look, I, I'm, I'm a big believer for environmental reasons to redevelop buildings that you can. Um, the like the impact on the carbon footprint. You know, everybody thinks, geez, if I tear a building down and I build a new building, I can get great efficiencies in the HVAC systems, et cetera, and it'll it'll be a positive on the overall carbon footprint. But the truth is, if you tear a building down and throw it away, its impact on the, the environment, you know, takes something like 50 to 100 years to recoup. Um, versus renovating a building and fixing its systems. I, I think the difference between a brand new building and a, and a, and a properly renovated building, um, you know, something like five to 10% savings from a carbon standpoint. So, you know, when you, when you put that up against what you're doing to the environment by demolishing a building, it takes a long time to recoup that. So I'm a big believer in personally redeveloping any buildings that you can um, but not all are salvageable. Yeah, in, you know, I, I think what we saw in Lower Manhattan after 9-11 is a good example. There are a number of buildings that were built down there in the, I don't know, 30s, 40s, and 50s. They no longer work 
as office in 10 million feet was repurposed into residential buildings. So, you know, we, we may, may well see some of that also. You're obviously a big fan of New York, as a lot of people are, in its resilience, its ability to attract people. And, like, I don't think that you could find many people who wouldn't, um, who would argue against the, like, the magnetic nature of the city. So no one thinks it's dead but or that it's over, but there are many people who think it's got a lot of problems right now. I mean, these are some facts. Rising crime, deep affordability issues, high unemployment. What do you think needs to happen in the city to ensure its long-term viability, the long-term viability that that you need for to invest in assets here, for it to continue to be the city that it's been? Yeah, look, I, I think that, um, you know, I think having a long-term view when it comes to investing in hard assets is important. And these things, in my view, are cyclical, right? I mean, it's not the first time that New York City faced some of these issues. Um, you know, it, it, it had these exact same issues, you know, in the 70s. And um, I think what it takes... Famously, not a great time for the city. Yeah, no, right. But but that, but then it thrived, right? And really what it comes down to is leadership. and. I think that, um, you know, I think both New York City and, and, and the state, you know, now have really good leadership that are really thoughtful about these issues and are working hard to solve them. And uh, I think in, in the fullness of time, we'll work through it and New York City will come out of this and will be a great city. Like I said, this city was built for growth. And it's exciting. Young people want to be here. Companies follow talent. And this is where the talent is. And, um, you know, these, this will pass. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, everything's not rosy at the moment, but, um, but with a long-term view and the fullness of time, I think it will, it'll get back to where it needs to be. So you think that the leadership is doing a good job so far? Yeah, I think they're, they're really focused on the issues and are, are working hard to solve them. I'm sure that you won't be able to reveal much right now, but when we're next hearing about the next Waterman Clark project, what's it going to be? Is it going to be another office asset in a gateway city, do you think? Well, at the moment, for all the reasons that we talked about today, our, our focus has been primarily on office and in New York City. You know, I, it's both, both Todd and I are uh, historically been contrarian investors and have done our best deals during periods of uncertainty when when many people, you know, doubted, doubted the future of an industry. So um, in all probability, our next investment will be in New York City in office. Um, you know, again, for all, all the reasons that we talked about today. You don't think you're not attracted to the Sun Belt like, like everyone else? Well, look, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, um, a lot of people have, have gone to to you know florida and texas and um there's a lot of money chasing opportunities there and it's pushed down um cap rates and returns i mean same thing for um industrial warehouse business and you know life science and a couple of other things and look they're all good in businesses and i'm not saying you can't make money doing that but i've always liked to um head in the other direction of the herd so um you're not likely to read that we'll be doing that you know investing in the sunbelt um at this point in our evolution 
Rick, thank you for doing this. Very good to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. Of course, Miriam. Thanks for inviting me. I should have said that at the beginning. I appreciate it. That's Rick Clark. He's the managing partner at Waterman Clark, and he was formerly Brookfield Property Chairman. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.